0: Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings magazine editor and chief, retired Navy Captain, Intel Officer Extraordinaire, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill.
1: Well, wow, I got the special intro today.
0: Yeah, I just I embellished. I didn't embellish, I just added some more details. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. You're yeah, it's great to be on the show today. Uh, great to be uh, have have survived a line of thunderstorms this passed here in Northern Virginia that dumped a couple inches of uh, of rain. So it's been a little bit crazy. I grew, I'm reminded of uh, our talk with the former director of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. For some reason, I can say that today. No, you say couldn't when, say on Friday. When, yeah, when Dr. Catherine Sullivan was on the show, but she was fantastic, and I'm just reminded of you know what. Her, she, as you said uh, in our morning meeting today, she gave probably the most succinct and um, I think probably understandable and soft, but but in very scientific uh, terms explanation of what global warming and sea level rise is all about. So, uh, so uh, saw a little of that firsthand today uh, with uh, this very powerful thunderstorm here in uh, in the DC area. Absolutely.
0: Um, So our August issue is our Coast Guard theme issue, as it is uh, every year. And uh, on the show with us uh, this week is the author of the Enlisted Prize Essay Contest, second prize. It's on page 18 of the August issue. It's called The Coast Guard's First Aid Fiasco. The author is Chief Bosun's mate, Philip Knoll, and he's joining us from a rest stop in Maine. (laughs) Hello, Chief. Hey,
1: sir, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you guys for inviting me.
0: Our pleasure. So uh,
1: first off, uh, Chief, just tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing in Maine, what your current job is up there. Uh, you mentioned you're in Jonesport, Maine. Correct. I, uh,
2: I've never heard of it before either. It's, uh, it's in down east Maine, uh, well to the north, our second station south of the U.S.-Canadian uh, border along the east coast. And
1: I'm the executive petty officer there. So I grew up in New Hampshire. And uh, so there's a different different accent between down East Maine and other parts of New England. But we used to always joke that that those areas of Maine, you know, would say you can't quite get there from here. That was the uh, <laughs> you're spot on. I think that was from my yeah, experience
0: here. <laughs> so, <like> John Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh,
1: how how big a town is uh, Jonesport?
2: Um, you know, that's a great question. I think uh, somebody showed me a map of census data from uh, maybe, I don't know, 1858, and not much has changed. So it's, it's somewhere, I think it hovers in the, uh, a little over a 1,000, maybe just under 2,000. Got it, got it. And what, what are the assets that the Coast Guard's got at the Coast Guard station there? So it's actually, uh, there's kind of a dual command there. The station has two 47-foot motor lifeboats for heavy weather. And a 29 uh, foot response boat, small for you know all multi mission, and then there's an 87 foot patrol boat that's its
1: own uh, own separate command, uh, t- tenant command of the station. Wow! And is uh, search and rescue is that the, the primary mission of your of your station there? What are uh, uh, fisheries regulation? What what are the what are the main mission areas that you guys have got? I I would say like all Coast Guard stations, if if any federal
2: action is required at sea, that's our job that day. Uh, and we really never know what we're going to get into on any given day.
0: Yeah, we were just talking sure. to Lieutenant Andrew Ray about his article, which deals with sort of global um, things that the Coast Guard's into. So you're kind of talking about more traditional when people think of the Coast Guard uh, and the perfect storm and, the you know, what the average public person knows about the Coast Guard. Those are sort of the mission focuses that, that you, you guys are into there. Sure, yes, sir. So, obviously, so who- it's good to be in Maine in the summertime. Um, <laughs> yeah, Wintertime, maybe not so much.
2: Everybody has to remind me of that for some reason. I, uh, You know, you can never just enjoy summer because somebody's <laughs> always talking about how incredible the winter is.
0: I'm that guy. I'm that be, guy.
2: Right? Yeah, I don't know what it's going to be like, but we'll see. So, I
0: went to Sears School in Brunswick in January. And so, I can tell you it was pretty god awful. Yeah. So, have fun with that.
1: <laughs> I went to Sears School in Brunswick in June. And there was still snow on the ground, so that gives you some, <laughs> some appreciation of this, right?
0: Yeah, Who <laughs> so are those guys. With
1: heat. You know, yeah. that's, that's my own saving <laughs> grace there. Yeah, fantastic. So, uh, Chief, just tell us a little bit about what your article is about, the first, go- the Coast Guard's first aid fiasco. So it says, lessons learned from um, when a tragedy began on a fishing vessel, or in Sea, um, off the, the coast of Massachusetts. When did that happen? And uh, tell us a little bit about, about that Um response by a 47-foot motor lifeboat like you have at your station there in Jonesport, Maine. Uh, What happened when the Orange Sea sank? Sure. So the uh,
2: the Orange Sea um, was underway off the coast of Massachusetts. I wasn't there. I wasn't involved in the case. I just read uh, after-action reports from the NTSB and the Coast Guard. Um, Essentially, the the fishing boat was out there, uh, became disabled, started taking on water at some point, was assisted by a good Samaritan, uh then a coast guard boat crew went out at a uh, at some point the the vessel sank or capsized and the uh the three parties on board all commercial fishermen entered the water two of them were recovered uh one was sighted floating floating face down and uh was recovered by a, a boat swimmer from one of the lifeboats uh once they got him on board they uh they proceeded to do CPR I think for for over an hour a uh, helicopter tried to provide support with an emergency medical technician, and uh, and with an automated defibrillator. Attempts to deliver both were unsuccessful, and uh, ultimately the captain perished. The uh, what it what it kind of did was initiate a couple of actions: one internal with the Coast Guard major incident review, and then with the uh, NTSB with its own investigation over the you know the circumstances surrounding why this captain died, why the vessel sank. And the uh, the general outcome was that Coast Guard boat crews needed improved first aid proficiency and equipment, and particularly uh, proficiency in the equipment that they had on board. Even though the lifeboat was uh, was fitted with a emergency medical kit that that any professional EMT would probably hold, the crew was not trained in the use of most of the items in there. Um, so that was that was kind of the crux of my article. That's really what what you know, made me think about it, I guess, were these two uh, these two investigations.
0: Yeah, that that surprised me when I read it, that uh, like everybody aboard a Coast Guard crew was not better trained in terms of first response medical. You know, um, if you're in an Army infantry unit, um, it's not mandatory. But I know as the wars went on, more and more folks within any given platoon were combat medic trained. Um, and, And so that proved to be quite, useful once uh once they hit kinetic stuff so what is the baseline amount of training so i come out of boot camp and i go right to my first unit um what do i know am i even cpr trained at that point
2: so from my understanding and this this is a guess i will say this between boot camp and your first operational unit if it's a small boat station you will get first aid and cpr training uh, initial certification from the um, american red cross american heart association i think there's there's four or five different vendors that'll provide the, uh, provide the training. So you being a new member of the Coast Guard will have a first aid or CPR card from uh, an identified and respected provider, right? Like someone that, that generally does that kind of training. After that, however, there's no real requirement to maintain that card. Uh, everything from that point on can be basically on, on the job training, uh, a training room review, no, uh, no kind of formal effort to do it.
0: Because a CPR qual remind me only lasts one year, right? A red car, a Red Cross one, CPR. One to two. Okay. Yep. One okay. to two.
2: And now there are there are so many different levels. Even the Red Cross has, you know, they have BLS certifications from uh, basic life support. Um, there are wilderness medical courses. There, there are a, a slew of different courses that are a little more attuned to the Coast Guard's mission. They're a little more applicable. A um, You know, a basic first aid CPR course, if you've ever sat through one provided by the Red Cross, is really, really geared for, you know, kind of office workers and people that just want to give back to their community. Right. People that just want to be prepared in an incident. Uh, It's not really geared for professional responders necessarily, uh, because those professional response courses are a little more expansive.
0: So you talk about the NTSB's recommendations. Um what were those specifically and what has the Coast Guard done to incorporate those so far?
2: So the uh, the NTSP first recommended that uh you know at least one person of the crew is trained in first aid, and the training that they receive needs to be on the equipment that's carried on the boat. Uh the you know, you could take that one of two ways, right? You could either limit capability, limit the amount of material that's on the boat, and then uh, you know, only train them to that that minimal level, or Kind of expand the uh, expand the equipment and train people a little bit better to provide greater greater capability, greater life support. So that's kind of that's really what I argue is that the Coast Guard has a uh, you know we've got an expansive mission. There are a lot. There's there's no doubt that uh, that expanding any kind of first aid training would you know would take money, time, and effort. Uh, However, I think like you guys said, you know, it surprised you right to know that the the Coast Guard had this baseline really pretty pretty minimal level of first aid training when the public expectation i think is a, a whole lot higher most people see a coast guard vessel coming toward them they uh they equate it with an ambulance on the street and uh, that is absolutely not the case the helicopter as shown you know in the in the orange sea incident uh was unable to deploy the swimmer all helicopter rescue swimmers are uh, emergency medical technicians i think uh, even entis they're intermediate most um so a much higher standard, a national standard, right, that they have to meet, one that boat crews do not have to meet. But if a helicopter is unavailable, like in down east Maine, if a, uh, if a helicopter had to come up to the area that we work, we're, we're talking hours, you know, potentially to, to get somebody diverted from Cape Cod up to here. So they're not always, uh, helicopters aren't always accessible.
0: Yeah, so you guys will definitely, in most cases, be the first ones on the scene. So I think the analogy for me is a, is a police officer, right? Because you guys have an LE component uh, with what you do, the nature of your business. Um, so your average city cop, how much medical training does he have? I think it's more than just CPR, right?
2: I, I would assume. And, you know, you brought up earlier about uh, combat casualty care, right? T-triple-C? Our tactical crews, like at all of our maritime safety and security teams, go through TCCC. The problem with applying TCCC to the Coast Guard search and rescue mission is TCCC is individual based, right? I'm I'm trying to save myself or save my buddy. I'm not really trying to save members of the public, and I'm trying to save you from kind of a really specific set of of injuries, right? Motive injuries, so. A gunshot, a, a you know, shrapnel from an explosion. It's not really geared for hypothermia, drowning, and you know, amputations and and uh, whatever else we might see more, more commonly on the water.
1: So, chief, how many how many people? What's the size of a crew of a forty seven foot response boat? So, a minimum for search and th- search and rescue would be three to four. Kind of depends
2: on the the unit standards, but. Uh, I'd say in general, if you if you wanted to run it, it would be four. There's an engineer, a coxswain who uh, who leads the boat crew, and then two boat crew members who uh, run the deck.
1: Got it. And uh, the 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 OIC, if you will, a uh, chief petty officer, uh, E6. What's what's the, the rank well, structure? So
2: on a uh, on a boat, you can go down to the the E3, E4 level as the person that's running the boat. Uh, it's um, let's say we'll, we'll take Station Jonesport for example. Twenty eight people assigned. A bosom may master chief is the officer in charge of the entire station. That means he runs both uh, both lifeboats and the response boat. And each duty section staffs probably two crews of four. So uh, the right now at, at Jonesport you've got an E five and two E fours that run wow.
1: by uh, yeah, that's that's you know it's a that's that's a big difference between I think uh, Navy and and Coast Guard is that you guys have got units that uh, uh, you know, out operating on their own, you, you can have an E five in charge, right? E five is the OIC, or as the, uh, or as the on scene commander, if you will.
2: Right, and you're seeing, uh, you know, these are interacting with the public too. I mean, all these crews are interacting directly with the the American public. So there's a there's a big expectation, a big uh, big responsibility,
1: I think, with, with what these guys do, especially at such a junior level. So, what kind of feedback have you gotten on your article from higher ups uh, in the Coast Guard?
2: It's kind of uh, kind of similar to my uh, my last uh, effort to write with you guys. You know, some people agree with it. I think most people that do the mission fully agree with it. This has been an issue for a long time. We uh, we speak about professionalization, but um, you know, if you're not professionalizing the capability that you're providing the taxpayer, you know, what, what have we really done? So right now, when we talk about professionalization, I feel like we're, we're really kind of we're limited out to. Uh, You know, boat driving, right? Boat handling, seamanship. Um, You know, professionalization would be to provide a service that's needed. We've got people that are dying on the water. Let's let's find a way to sustain them until we can get them to a uh, to a hospital. So, a lot of people agree. Uh, It it has been a a long-standing issue. And then, you know, some some people take issue with the the way I wrote it, and and I understand that. I'd I'd say, anytime you disagree with, you know, a, a work group, particularly, is is a little confrontational, probably, but. Uh, you know, my my biggest takeaway from the re- results of the work group, as stated in the article, is just that they expanded the number of people that would benefit from first aid training from the boat crews who the NTSB said needed to a an entire you know kind of shoreside uh, infrastructure, shoreside pal that we have um, that really that don't go out and provide service to taxpayers. The Coast Guard doesn't no longer really respond to non distress cases. So it used to be that the Coast Guard would go out if you ran out of gas and tow your boat in. If you were becalmed as a sailboat, they may tow your boat in. Uh, things have changed. Uh, federal legislation's come down that uh, the Coast Guard's an emergency responder now. So we try to refer all non distress cases to alternate commercial responders or to you know, other members of the public, right, that might be willing to assist. To, to leave the Coast Guard available for these emergency responses. Well, the one thing that we did was we, we pulled this emergency or we pulled these non distress cases away from our general workload, and we didn't fill that space with much. Um, so now we're just emergency responder without the capability to provide emergency medical care, at least to the level that that the NTSB kind of recommended that we should be able to do.
0: So the the critics and maybe even the Coast Guard higher ups, are they concerned about the liability part? Um, You you talk about how there's no statutory requirement for Coast Guard personnel to be medically trained beyond just basic CPR. Um, and, And so why? Why wouldn't now? Okay, I know it takes time and funding. Got it. But why would there be some pushback to this notion? It just strikes me as for the reasons you state just really obvious.
2: I can give you my E7 answer, I think, but uh, I, don't, yes, I don't know. Yes, give I us our, your
0: E7 answer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I, I almost think just the lack of motivation and will. And, uh, you know, I, I there are we're, we're part of a cabinet-level agency, the Department of Homeland Security. It has its own uh, emergency medical protocols that are signed by the, the department's chief medical officer. I I truly don't understand why we can't just adopt those. You know, from what I see, it as is a kind of a, a lack of maybe just a lack of will I don't know a lack of initiative but uh, the Coast Guard belongs to the Department of Homeland Security which has a chief medical officer who signed basic life support protocols uh, for the entire department and uh, I, you know in my opinion it would be very easy for us to adopt that another easy answer to this problem is to uh, to go with the requirements as put out by the National Maritime Center which, Credentials and licenses, uh, commercial mariners within the U.S. I mean, there's a uh, there's several different courses that these guys have to take to to maintain basic proficiency to provide medical aid at sea, and uh, you know we as the Coast Guard as the professional responders don't don't adhere to either of those at least on the boat crew side because we don't provide that capability at this point.
1: Well, one of the points that you made in your article that. Uh, was also surprising to us was uh, this statement that courts u.s courts have repeatedly held that the coast guard has no duty to rescue or provide aid to someone the service itself did not imperil and i think most taxpayers would be very surprised at that that uh that you don't actually have a duty to provide rescue services at sea so uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that right the i mean the coast guard
2: is expected and and you know, directed by Congress to maintain uh, search and rescue facilities um, as part of our, our national search and rescue system. Uh, however, you know, when it comes to an actual duty to, to launch and to affect to a rescue, there is no duty to do so, really. we the, the duty is to maintain the search and rescue facility.
0: So the the whole you have to launch, you don't have to come back thing is – Sort of just, you know, folklore. You know, I, well,
2: well, what I see, what I see, that is, is that, you know, those, that's the mantra of the people that gravitate toward the work, right? Uh, the, the Coast Guard doesn't attract people that don't want to go out and, and make a difference in the world, and uh, they don't retain those people either. So, uh, though not stated in legislation, I that is still a, a mantra many uh, subscribe to. I would say.
0: Well, that and that language sounds a lot like legal ease right i mean that that's i guess to define a lane in legal terms again you're talking about liability um and so i think anybody who's ever met somebody who's in the coast guard there's no more and i'm saying this as a lifetime navy guy raised by a lifetime marine guy um there's no more motivated service and as we were saying in the previous episode um the thing about the Coast Guard is you guys as you said at the outset, no two days are alike. You wind up doing what you're trained to do. You get involved in life saving, you get involved in rescues, you get involved in um you know preserving assets uh in 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 a way that uh, no other services do. There's a law enforcement component. Um there's a DOD component sometimes. Uh, So it's not about, as you've said, it's the folks who are drawn to the Coast Guard have an ethic that really is different than what the legalese says, right? And this gets back to your point, which is sometimes you get in situations where you're like, man, it feels like we're under-trained for the circumstance that we we are in now and we could be again in the future.
2: Right, and that's the, uh, you know, I think that's the biggest thing is that we, we want to save lives at sea. We want to bring people home. That's, uh, you know, that's what our predecessors have done. I, I mentioned in the article, you know, th- I look at the service now in terms of first aid and we're, we're severely lacking, but I look back to 1922, which is only two years after the Coast Guard actually formed from its predecessor, uh, Revenue Cutter and, and U.S. Life Saving Service. So only two years into its creation. And they publish national standards for the resuscitation of the apparently drowned. So look how far we've come. I mean, we, we went from establishing a national standard to save drowning victims to not even really meeting any standards at you know certain points of people's careers now, uh, as they as they launch on those same kind of cases that guys have launched on since 1922 to go save people at sea.
0: National so, standards for the resuscitation of the apparently drowned.
2: Yep, it's a it's a very very cool pamphlet with some some incredible uh, photos of the techniques that were used at the time, which are you know I, I wouldn't recommend using now. I think we've proven them uh, not not the best, but um, I, they did. They published national
1: standards.
0: It sounds like an Emerson, Lake and Palmer album. Very <laughs> <It does>. prog <laughs> rock, maybe moody blues. Yeah, I like it.
1: So. Back a little bit, um, you mentioned Chief uh, the NTV, NTSB recommendations that came out of this, and then that the Coast Guard has uh, the Services Director of Health, Safety, and Work Life released some guidance after the ORNC incident, uh, particularly prohibiting the carriage of automated external defibrillators. So talk about that because you say that uh, that 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 uh, policy directive on the face value seemed to make sense, but that it also leads to some unsettling um, ramifications sure and they uh yeah i i can't remember what report that we
2: saw first uh you know because i was in operational or training units that i've been involved in both forces my whole career so that you know when things like this happen and we know an investigation's coming we 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 follow it we monitor it to see see what's going to come down and uh you know the expectation was um that aeds would be promoted for use everywhere right? Oh, we didn't have an AED in this situation. We needed it. Well, I, everybody, I think in the boat forces community shocked to say the least, when the message came out that prohibited AED carriage, um, without some very, very restrictive and almost, um, I, from a, from an operator standpoint, almost nonsensical because some of the regulations were specifically directed to GSA facilities. You know, onshore facilities where anybody could come up and pull the AD out and and try and save someone that, you know, collapsed with a heart attack or or something. But, you know, we're talking about professional response boats that are that are designed to respond to emergencies. And we were following GSA guidelines that uh, that didn't seem to make a lot of sense. They uh, they did revise the policy once and um, they they allowed carriage if you were to meet those requirements but initially it was a prohibition on on all AED uh, usage we were just very i think everybody in the boat forces community was very very shocked that we prohibited it and we were all on the same page as far as how do we get this capability back we can't believe that we lost it because you, know, you guys know how the military works usually you lose a capability it doesn't come back right like it's gone so that's what we expected luckily it came back, but even then, with the caveat that hey, it's at the officer in charge discretion, and only if you follow these this set of rules, which granted may, may have made the uh, the equipment more serviceable. But at the end of the day, it was really designed for uh, an AED that sits on a wall for for months or years at a time, you know, that anyone could use, not for professional responders. So it it was a uh, it was very shocking. I think. I think people just did not expect it to go that way. We we really thought that we were going to bolster capability, and instead, it seemed like we we severely restricted
1: or limited it. Yeah, back to your analogy at the at the start of the show about the uh, a response boat. You know that most John Q. taxpayer thinks of a response boat and Coast Guard boat as a an ambulance on the water, right? At least in part, um, and so you would expect. That that ambulance on the water is carrying an AED that it's got the ability to resuscitate somebody or at least at least try to right to shock them back get their heart started again if it's stopped if they're a drowning victim or an apparent drowning victim so yeah that does seem counterintuitive to take that action to take that capability off of a off of a boat
2: right it wasn't it wasn't a new capability I mean I was at I was at Station Golden Gate mm-hmm. in San Francisco for for seven years so that's seven years of um, uh, suicide victims from the Golden Gate Bridge. And we would hook an AED up pretty much the whole time, uh, in every case, but that's, that's seven years of using an AED. And then one day it's, it's just gone, you know, where did, where did it go? Um, so yeah, just like you said, it's very, it's concerning. It was concerning to us. And I'm sure it'd be concerning to, you know, anybody that, that had to deal with that.
0: Well, like you framed it against the army example that I gave about being able to do combat medicine, um, you, you rightly framed it in terms of war injuries. Um, I will say that when I was embedded with the 101st Airborne, um, in 2010, um, they did do triage on a, a, Afghan boy who inadvertently stepped on a landmine. Um, and there was no doc in, in the outpost, right? And so, uh, these guys having combat medicine saved this. I would say he was probably 14 years old, saved his life. Um, but again, that's a war injury. You know, having your leg blown off is a war injury. But when you talk about what you're most likely to see in a recreational maritime environment, it's it's reasonable to say, okay, heart attacks, you already mentioned drowning, lacerations, blunt force trauma from like sailboat booms and that sort of thing, um, you know, knives from cutting your your, miscutting your fish, you know. So you guys, as the first unit on the scene, need to be able to attend to all of those. And that's a lot more than just being able to do CPR.
2: Right. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's really the argument. I mean, you also forgot uh, fish hooks and eyeballs. I think that's a pretty common one or, or anywhere for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the, uh, you know, that's the crux of the argument is just if we were to invest in only Coast Guard boat crews, which are the community that were identified as needing improvement, the cost would be less, we can get people trained to a level that, that really makes an impact. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with you, sir, like uh, TCCC, I mean, it's going to make everybody better, no, no matter what, right? You, you learn about physiology, you learn how to use the, the various gear, but it is limited. And uh, at least in the Coast Guards, or in, in my experience anyway, um, you know, it's just being a, a TCCC, I, I, I can't remember the, the baseline level, but where you carry the IFAT kit with you. You know, it's pretty limited in the material in there, and it it's really is designed just for you.
0: Yeah, and it also attitudinally makes the unit forward-leaning, you know, to, to know that we're going to get into some stuff here, right? So just, just accept it and be prepared, you know. So I don't know if you've ever had a boot camp show up, and the first thing that he or she sees is something that's kind of grisly you know um and and are they ready for that situation having not been through the medical training that might introduce them to the idea that you're going to see you know a sucking chest wound and this is what it looks like and don't lose your head just attend to it right those kinds of things i think would make them more effective uh when they get in those circumstances
2: right that's a you know that's an angle i didn't even approach but you know the the more exposure you have to it on the front end, absolutely, the less impact it's going to have uh, to you and your psyche going forward, no doubt about it, and your performance during you know at the time.
1: Hey, chief, I got a question for you about the you know how much money or an extra time and training would it take to bring everybody up the crew the crews on response boats up to the speed that you think is needed? Like uh, for your for your station there in Jonesport, Maine, you, you mentioned uh, would you say 25, twenty five thirty. Uh, people at the station so if you if each one of those response boats needs to have somebody who's an emt you know emti for example how much extra time and money would that take you know for uh for your unit each year
2: yeah so i so i wouldn't even suggest making everyone an emt i think the coast guard is very unique in that it's it's also a regulatory agency and can uh you know through its national maritime center can can determine what courses meet the requirements that are needed at, at sea. I mean, that's, that's what we do. We, we make regulations for, for commercial boats. Um, I, I don't see why it couldn't be done in house, you know, using, uh, whether using DHS, uh, medical protocols or, or some that the coast guard develops on its own or some that are existing that, that are already being used on the commercial side. I think, I think all of that exists. There's really no need for a third party, to, uh, to provide the training. If we could do it in-house, uh, you know, an in-house obviously is going to have a cost too, but, but I do think it would probably lessen if you had, you know, by the time you, you start training people to be trainers, you get them in the field, uh, you know, eventually it'll kind of cancel itself out.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, we know how this goes. Somebody would have to decide that it's, it's, it's necessary because of, um, the amount of times that the absence of it is, is causing people to, to die. Um, and and you, you talk about um, the original, the uh, Oren C situation where there was, you know, the NTSB said, hey, would be nice if folks had this training. And then you create either an A school or a C school and it becomes a subspecialty and then it becomes a, a quota that you've got to have at any level level command. Um, but it would be, you know, professionally enhancing and it can be a, a, a career track that's desirable. Um, You know, there's no downside to this, I I, I don't think, you know. So speaking of career paths, uh, because our audience probably doesn't know a whole lot about the Coast Guard, talk about your career and the places you've been and uh, where where you think you wanted to go from here.
2: Sure. and I'll throw one last pitch out there to uh, just for the the medical portion. Uh, You know, the new congressional initiative, uh, Military to Mariner. Um, you know, if, if we were able to get these courses that are approved by the NMC, now people, when they get out, automatically have a, another leg up for, uh, for professional mariner certification, which is huge.
0: I love that. I love that a lot.
2: I try. I try to support the idea a little bit. they're going to bite but, off on it.
0: No, they will because it's, that's a holistic way forward, right? And, and that's a recruiting tool. It's a retention tool. That's the right way to think about it.
2: Uh, to answer your question, so I, I grew up in the mountains of West Virginia bass fishing with my dad. And, uh, I, it was time to get out and go see bigger and better things. I went to the, uh, the Coast Guard recruiter. I actually went to the Marines first. It was September 10th, 2001. And, uh, the Marine rec- recruiter, uh, flat out told me that, you know, I was going to do a lot of training and embassy work and that the wars were probably all done. <laughs> and, uh, I happened to see a, uh, you know, it was, the, it was near the end of the month. So we probably met his quota and I, I happened to see a, a Coast Guard, um, poster on the wall at Met or at, uh, at the recruiting station, you know, lifeboat crashing through the surf, went in, talked to him and, uh, shipped, uh, shipped the next day. Like, you know, pretty much got in, it wasn't September 10th when I went to the recruiting station, but either way I shipped on September 11th, I'm sitting in, uh, sitting in MEPS just had my physical that morning. And then the plane hit the tower and the second plane hit the tower and you know the world, the world changed. But uh, I missed it all. I was in boot camp for the, uh, for all of the fallout. Anything that we knew was was told to us by a recruit company commander. And from there, I went to uh, Station Golden Gate. I was in the, uh, I fast tracked from E three to E seven or E six in uh, in about six or seven years, and then uh, sat at E seven since then, or sat at E six until uh, E seven about two years ago. So
0: what what years were you in San Francisco?
2: I was in San Francisco from 2001 until 2008.
0: So I, I worked out there at military.com from 05 to to 20, what, 2014. Did
2: you have like one of those 400th floor offices where you, you no. were putting players on the wall? We, we were on
0: 4th and Market, the 7th deck of seven ninety nine Market, but we did a lot of stuff around Fleet Week. Did you ever do any stuff with Fleet Week?
2: Oh yeah, for sure. I've I've sat there under the Blue Angels and been impressed, just like everyone else. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Fleet Week
0: San Francisco is the best. It's fantastic. Oh yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. I, I, w- I wish they would have left me out there. I would have I would have probably died there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Chief, we know that you just came from uh, Yorktown, right? Where you were uh, doing coxswain training for uh, Coast Guard uh, bosun's mates. Yes, sir. Uh,
2: we did. Uh, I did. I was the underway supervisor for bosun mate A school. So they do. They do about seven weeks of uh, classroom and simulator time, and then we get them underway on the boats and, and went out and you know gave them, showed them the real world a little bit showed them the ocean. How'd you like that? How'd you like being an instructor? What a great job! You know, I, I had always told myself I, I that I hated training and uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't at the top of my list uh, because it's frustrating and it. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. some people get it quickly, others don't. Um, getting to the training center, seeing a formal training effort. Definitely opened my eyes, showed me how to, you know, show me a lot of tricks and and tips to
1: to be able to get that next generation to the point we need them. Hey, I wanted to uh, just make a plug here because uh, I'm hoping that you'll send this out. And I know uh, uh, Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, who's on our staff, will get this out to a wide enlisted audience. But for uh, enlisted members who are listening, um, one of the things that we've done over the last five or six years of the Naval Institute is we have uh, engineered more and more enlisted participation in the open forum in proceedings and we, one of the ways we've done that is through our essay contests and particularly this essay contest the chief Nell, you took a second prize this year the enlisted prize essay contest which runs every year uh, generally in the springtime but uh, we, we want people to know that um, proceedings is not just a magazine for officers it is very much an, uh, a magazine for anyone who aspires to be a professional in the sea services? And uh, Chief, you've been a great example of that. You've published, I think, three or four pieces uh, with proceedings. Two of them have been uh, essay contest winners or, or second prize winners, uh, which is just uh, you know terrific. And it also comes with some some nice prize money as well.
2: For sure, yes, sir. And I, you know, I would uh, for anybody that needs some motivation one day. I think all you have to do is look up the history of the Naval Institute uh, Admiral Warden during the time of the ironclads, you know, this was trying to, trying to win a war between the States and, uh, you know, the disruptive kind of forward thinking that it took to, to be able to make that happen is, is just, I think inspiring, you know, to me. And I think, uh, a lot of people, if you, you know, if you you need some inspiration one day, read that story, read how the Naval Institute was, was started. And I, I bet it inspires you to, to, uh, Dare to read, write, think and speak and uh, and get your message out there and, and try and affect some change.
0: We did not give him a script, everybody. That's that's <laughs> from the heart. Good stuff. I love it. I
2: love it. All I can say is uh, thank you guys for continuing to provide the forum for for ideas to get out there. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, this this isn't a an effort to call anyone out or, or to, you know, say that anyone made missteps it's just try to make it better try to make the service better try to make uh you know the nation safer and, and more holes well
1: fantastic so the, the uh, we've been talking to boson's mate chief phil null u.s coast guard uh, his article in the august issue of proceedings is called the coast guard's first aid fiasco it won second prize in this year's enlisted prize essay contest uh chief no thanks again for being on the show thank you guys All right. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you soon.